All right, guys. Take number two. Big John and Doc on a mega power cast. Our, my original tag team partner on internet broadcasting and podcasting and whatever the hell casting you're doing. We're going to talk tonight again about our new favorite book, Defeating Big Government Socialism by Newt Gingrich. Something I think ought to be required reading for all of our 2022, 24, and 26 candidates, at least for the conservatives. The Democrats and the socialists are the ones we're trying to defeat. So, Doc, can I hear you now? <laughs> well, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Now we're all clicking on all cylinders. <laughs> all right, brother. Yeah, good to be here. Um, we started this book club the other day on the introduction to new Speaker Gingrich's book. And I think I think it set it up really, really nice. Um, you win the argument, then you win the vote. And right now the argument couldn't be more important because we are not arguing on level set. We are not arguing on a plane where there's a whole lot in common and it's just a matter of what side wins and the style and the manner in which we govern the country. Uh, this really is and has been since 2012 uh, a hardcore battle between traditional institutions of the country that protect the interest of the average ordinary American versus a new refined version of what is fair and equitable uh, in a society that should be manipulated upon a political ideology that is foreign to uh, what we have here in the country. Now, with that said, um, I think there's a lot of room here, John, to talk about different ideas and competing ideas. Uh, I don't endorse everything that is in Gingrich's book here, Defeating Big Government Socialism and Saving America's Future. But I think it's a good place to start for those of us who are either on the right and are trying to figure out what it is we stand for and where it is that we need to go in 2022, 2024, and beyond. Or uh, a conversational um, debate initiation, whatever you want to call it, for those who are either skeptical or don't agree. I think it's an intellectually sound book that can make people construct their own arguments one way or the other on the various points that are raised and actually discuss ideas and, compete, and competing ideas. Yeah, it's definitely a book that... Uh encourages discussion and uh, debate. It's something that makes you want to uh, inform other people, uh, be informed and be ready to talk to your friends, neighbors, and, and so on about 
the issues, you know, when you, you overhear your friends saying, well, you know, we need Medicare for all. Well, what does that entail? And this book doesn't talk about that specifically, but it does encourage you when the argument, when the debate, then win the vote. When you show people big government doesn't work, like uh, the response to the last uh, or the pandemic, uh, you know, you see where government was just set to fail. Now we've got, uh, not getting off topic, but uh, government officials that were keen in that response saying, yeah, we lied. First, you had Dr. Fauci. Now you have Dr. Burks. Uh, but we, you know, you can look that up on your own. But this book tells you, you know, win the debate, then win the vote. And that's a, a key thing. Can't just win elections based on I'm not the other guy. And that's what the Republicans are doing right now. And I don't want to get too far off. And I think that's why Newt wrote this book. Newt's an idea guy. In 1994, Newt had worked for 15 years to set the Republicans up to take the majority in the House and the Senate, which hadn't been done in 50 years, and he did it on ideas. Right. In 2012, your humble host, Big John, and his tag team partner here were one of few people who sat and said, we're voting for Newt. Um, Mitt Rom you, you can jam Mitt Romney down our throats all you want. We're voting for Newt. In, in a similar vein, in 2016, Donald Trump came along, a little less motivated ideologically and committed ideologically, but had his pulse on the electorate, as did Newt, but Newt's more of an intellectual. And that's why I think we need to get back to this, because the Republicans right now are taking for granted the victory that they think they're going to get. And I don't think they're going to get, at this point in time, the victory that we all want. But it'll be a victory that the establishment's happy with, because it will give them the majority, at least in the House, and they'll gamble on the Senate, but they won't be majorities that are so large where they have to deal with people that they don't like. And who doesn't the Republican Party like? Trump supporters, hardcore conservatives, ultra MAGA. This we flat out with you. It's a whole host of people outside of themselves. Right. And they, they do not want to have happen to them in 2022 what happened to them in 2010 where they picked up 60, 70 seats or a lot of seats. We're starting from a higher baseline than what we did back then and have an unruly majority come in. And that's why you've seen the Republicans back certain bipartisan proposals along with guns and additional spending and infrastructure with President Biden, I believe it's by design. That's just my conspiracy theory. Now, that doesn't get to the point of the book here, because the point of the book and the point of the book club is to talk about beating 
big government socialism. But I will add, it's difficult to defeat big government socialism when you have one side that is trying to play political games to protect their own posture and their own power, and that's the Republican establishment, versus a side that's out for blood and that's out to win. And that's the Democrats. They get it. So I don't necessarily want to have an argument with somebody on the right about what's convenient or what's easy to argue. Frankly, I hope this series that we're doing here enlists more debate and conversation from people who are attracted to ideas and debate from the left so we can actually win arguments and win elections. Because, as I said, at this point in time, the Republicans don't want to win arguments and win elections in Washington, D.C. They just want to inherit power. Right. And the, Democrat, and the Democrats uh, are consumed by power. And so let's have a discussion. And so I think that's where we're at. Yeah, I think it's funny. The people that are... Uh forcing discussion right now in American politics are Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. No Republican is really forcing the debate. But uh, let's pick right up where we left off. If you want to start on chapter one here. Okay, page 15, chapter one. We're going to do this. We're going to, and just so everyone knows, uh, this is old school book club style. I'm just, you know, we're not going to sit here and give you a PowerPoint presentation of what we think you want to hear. We're going to read the damn book. And then we're going to, and then and the way this works is anytime big John wants to say something, or I want to go and say something, we just interject. Now, if we had the ability where we can invite other people into the conversation, we would do that. That makes an ultimate book club, but this is what you get. And we hope you get something out of it. All right. So John, are you ready? Just do it. Chapter one, big government socialism isn't working and it can't. We must win a set of arguments to defeat big government socialism. By big government socialism, I mean the fanatical belief on the American left that claims are that that claims a better, fair future can be created if a gigantically powerful government controls or owns production and is guided by massive bureaucracies of professionals who focus on process rather than achievement. This is not the idyllic, pseudo-utopian, and fictional Scandinavian-style socialism to which American progressives like to allude. It is a big, formidable technological enhanced version of socialism, which has roots in the system that was developed by Frederick Engels and Karl Marx and brutally imposed on people by Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and other ruthless, ruthless tyrants. Now, let me just say this. When Bernie Sanders and AOC start talking about Democrat socialism, they do not know what they're talking about. Or... <laughs> They're useful idiots and know what they're talking about and are happy to be a pawn in the game. What 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 the Democrats in this country are are 
hoist or hoisting on people is not scan. You say something to a Scandinavian leader, a Swedish, a Finnish, or whatever, Den- Denmark, Danish person. I'm not talking about donuts. Uh, they do not appreciate being lumped into the socialism camp. They are not socialists. They are people who happen to believe in a very robust public welfare system. And in order to support it, they really have low taxes and promote a lot of uh, corporate opportunity, put it that way. What the folks in this country are talking about is the idea that you can have that kind of government wealth and corporate involvement in society and still manage the decline of the country through a, a, a socialist command system and ownership of private enterprise. That's not the Scandinavian model. And we've had people flat out say from Europe to Bernie Sanders, stop calling us socialists. We're not we're not socialists. <clears throat> All right, continuing on in the book. First, we must win the argument that big government socialism is not working. I want to say that again. It's not working. This should be an easy one. For the last year and a half, we have had vivid proof of this. Big bureaucratic government has proven it can't control the border, reduce crime, withdraw effectively from Afghanistan, modernize fast enough to compete with China, get schools to educate effectively, cope with challenges of the pandemic, or perform a litany of other duties vital to our survival. Again and again, we are witnesses to systems not working. The degree to which big government socialism's bureaucratic structures get out of touch with reality was vividly illustrated in early 2022 when Vice President Kamala Harris tweeted, quote, because of the bipartisan infrastructure law, America is moving again. That's what infrastructure is all about. Getting people moving. Unfortunately for Go ahead. <laughs> Unfortunately for her, that tweet went out as hundreds of people were stranded for up to 24 hours on Interstate 95 south of Washington DC in dangerous icy conditions. It just reinforced the sense that big government doesn't know what is going on and has it ever whether it's Kamala Harris or uh, Dick Cheney or anyone else a part of the D.C. swamp, when has big government ever known what is going on? It doesn't. The entire experience of public health systems breaking down during COVID-19 pandemic is a clear example of how much big government socialism simply can't deliver. They call it science. The speed and quality that people to the with the speed and quality that people expect. Any serious analysis of the last two and a half years since the emergence of the novel coronavirus in Wuhan, China, for I'll even allowed to say that, would illustrate would illustrate the confusion, lack of information, changing analysis, conflicting evidence, 
and unrealistic rules. Hundreds of thousands of Americans could still be alive today if the public health system were not an obsolete collection of widely differing local organizations in an increasingly bureaucratic, incompetent, and self-protecting federal bureaucracy at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Food and Drug Administration, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the National Institutes of Health. You know, that really strikes a, a chord there. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans would still be alive if it weren't for Dr. D- Fauci. Disco- Fauci, but discombobulation in government. Yeah, this, you know, changing rules, don't wear a mask, wear a mask, you know, put a handkerchief over your face. Uh, just complete... Uh, incoherency in uh, what they called science. Well, so let's ask the people that are listening, do you agree with that? Do you agree that what happened, the point that Newt Gingrich is making and that Big John is emphasizing, is that government was just so completely incompetent on many and multiple levels that it cost people's lives? What cost people's lives in 2020? Was it the pandemic? Was it the virus, the China virus, the Wuhan virus? Was it incompetent government bureaucrats in reaction to it? Combination of both? Who was more to blame? See, folks, this is a book club. We want you to think. We don't necessarily want to indoctrinate, but we're not going to hide where we're coming from. But we want you to think. Right, right on. Compare the difference in death rates from COVID-19 in well-organized countries such as Singapore, Japan, and South Korea with the American tragedy. According to data compiled by Statista, as of February 10, 2022, Singapore has seen a COVID-19 death rate of 154 people per million. Japan's death, uh, Japan's rate was 157 per million, and South Korea's 135. By contrast, U.S. deaths per million people were reported at a tragically astonishing 2,766. The gap in death rates was more than just an East Asian phenomenon. Canada, Denmark, Finland, and Austria, Australia all had better outcomes and saved more lives than the United States, India, which has a larger, more dense population in the United States, saw a per million death rate of 371. America's underperformance of public health was profound. Ineffective, Washington-based, big government socialist COVID-19 policies affected every state in the country. Our government school system has fallen further behind Chinese and Indian schools in preparing young people to succeed in a competitive world. So we're transitioning here. The the failure of COVID is now transitioning. Gingrich is transitioning into the failure of the school system. The schools, which are a public monopoly, by the way. 
Uh, if you're living in a, if you if you're living anywhere, uh, you don't necessarily get the option of going to a private school or to a parochial school. You're you're stuck into the public option, which can be good or bad. But let's talk about it. In some cities, the collapse of government-run schools is startling. Now, I want everyone to, to think about this for a minute. The schools of this country are collapsing. Yet, what are we talking about in the country today, Big John? Anything about but education. Anything but education. Well, yeah, that's true. Take away guns, take away abortion, take away this right, that right. I think the most important right our government gives is the right to damn education. In Baltimore, for example, in 2017, there were six schools in which not a single student had been able to pass the state exams. In 13 other Baltimore schools the, the same year, no students were proficient in math. In 2019, only 11% of sixth grade in Baltimore were proficient in math, and only 9.2% of high schoolers were proficient in Algebra 1. Now I just have to say, I don't think I was proficient in Algebra 1 when I was in high school. <laughs> Neither was I. But, you know, the basic mathematics that it takes to get a job and live, uh, man, that's something something you can't live without. I mean, you have to, when you're at the grocery store, you got to be able to, you know, add up what's in your, and, you know, before you get to the checkouts, you know, how much money you're spending, you know, you got to be able to do simple uh, multiplication tables and, and things like that, you know, to figure out taxes at, at the store or whatever. Go ahead. Yet the answer to this stunning failure which hits minorities and the poor especially hard, has been for teachers' unions to demand more power. They are placing students last while protecting incompetent, non-performing teachers and the entire system of failure. The process of dumbing down American education has become astonishingly fast and deeply destructive for students and national security. Faced with obvious failure, the teachers' unions and their allies have moved to eliminate grades, minimize mathematics, eliminate advanced classes, and seek to hide failures in a sea of mediocrity. I want everyone to think about that. Ask your local school board member, wherever you are, what are your standards and how do you measure up to the state expectations? I don't care what state you're in. My guess is most of you will be shocked at the deflection, at the denial, and if there is an admission, we're doing okay. What is that called? Mediocrity. Mm -hmm. Faced with overwhelming evidence that virtual teaching has been a failure, virtual teaching has been a failure, and especially a failure for minority and poor students, the teachers' unions have been militant about not returning to school. And in many cities, 
they have led strikes. In effect, the public has been required to pay billions for employees who refuse to come to work but insist on being paid. The problem has become so bad that some Democrat mayors, even though the teachers' unions were their biggest supporters, have begun to warn that teachers who fail to show up will simply not be paid. Parallel to the teachers' union's refusal to be accountable has been a system of measuring attendance that ignores absentee students to maximize payments. In some big city schools, including Baltimore, many students simply do not show up. Nevertheless, these so-called ghost students are listed as attending, so the schools can get more money from the taxpayers. The system is so blatant that some systems have pizza day for the two or three days a year when attendance is strictly counted for payment information. The result is an amazing surge of missing students who show up to eat, but not to learn. As I previously... Come to school is what they're doing. Say again? They're bribing kids to come to school instead of, you know, hey, get here, get your education so you can make something of yourself. They're bribed. What's next? They're going to pay kids? Are they going to start giving out Air Jordans? What? And keep in mind... The argument here that we're making is big government socialism isn't working. And part of big government socialism is this idea that state-run monopolistic schools are ideal. And what is happening is people aren't showing up, people aren't learning, and the only way they do show up is if you stuff a pizza down their face. Mm. That's a shame. Or put a dress on a dude. (laughs) <laughs> let's not go there well <laughs> yeah, i feel you i hear let's you let, let's let people think about that agree or disagree what do you think that's the point of the book club right do you agree with that do you disagree with it and why what is your arguments why do you feel the way that you do can we please in this country start thinking I don't want anyone to listen to us and to hear me say things and say, oh, I really agree, you know, brain dead, whatever. Or to have people say, this is what this guy said. He's a moron. No. Can you can you make an argument? Can you not hold? Can, can you just listen and not worry about screwing somebody and just defend yourself? Because what's happening in this country is big government socialism is winning, and it's winning because it's a predominant view in this country, and it stifles debate and thought. Yeah, I I think, you know, there was a time, once upon a time, when, you know, maybe only government could give education to the masses, but with technology and the uh, proof that charter schools and some kids learn better online uh, and things, you know, it's not necessarily a government program that we need. And if we do need it, it needs to be localized, not federalized. 
And let's for a moment talk about what it means in the educational range to talk about truth and talk about debate. In 1963, John Kennedy made a very important speech at American University in Washington, D.C., where he talked about peace. He made a big presentation about world peace and how we as individuals are supposed or should and could and can live amongst each other without blowing and killing everybody up. Mm -hmm. And here's what he said about institutions of higher education, or let's just dumb it down, and, or not dumb it down, but bring it down, bring it over and say any institution of education that the university is beautiful and it's beautiful more than just because it's a university it's beautiful because as john macefield wrote in his tribute to english universities he wasn't talking about buildings or camp campuses or whatever the splendid beauty of a university is because, as he said, it was a place where those who hate ignorance may strive to know and where those who perceive the truth may strive to make others see. Now, we're not here trying to tell you that what Newt Gingrich in this book is saying is truth but we're trying to make you see and think. And that's what education is. And that's also, in a strange way, or a roundabout way, what Clarence Thomas talks about when he brings up this powerful question, what binds us? What do we have in common anymore? How much association is there between us Americans? We used to be able to accept certain things and digest them and think about and formulate a response and agree or disagree, then move on. Yep. You can always agree to disagree, or maybe you can change somebody's mind, you know? That's what intelligence used to be. Now it's free speech for me and not for thee. And shut up. Yeah. All right, let's go back to Newt's book. As I previously mentioned, the national security system has become so bureaucratic and riddled with incompetence that it couldn't win after 20 years in Afghanistan and 18 years in Iraq. It is demonstrated that it can't plan a withdrawal from Afghanistan effectively, and it can't modernize fast enough to keep up with the Chinese communists in innovation or strategic agility. America runs a real risk of losing a major war with China because the big government socialism 
at the heart of our national security system is simply competent, self-serving, and run on cronyism and dishonesty. If the military is this riddled with senior-level corruption and dishonesty, imagine what the civilian bureaucracies and their political and business allies are like. And if the news media must operate in the swamp of dishonesty, guess how corroded and accepting of dishonesty it becomes? Furthermore, the propaganda media, the senior bureaucracies, and the highest levels of big corporations, big foundations, and big trade associations are all dominated by a woke culture that follows Humpty Dumpty's rule. And though the looking glass and what Alice found there, when I use a word Humpty Dumpty said in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean. Neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That's all. Well, culture depends on the elite's ability to redefine words, invent new ones, and insist on everyone adopting the new lexicon in a real sense, the heart of woke culture is Humpty Dumptyism. Consider the following. Despite centuries of regionally naming epidemics, there could be no Chinese virus or even a Wuhan virus because it would offend the Chinese Communist Party. To argue that there are only two pronouns or two sexes is to be assaulted as a homophobic, transphobic, binary, genderist, etc. To suggest that the content of your character is more important than the color of your skin is merely defending white privilege, even when the phrase comes from Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. To suggest that males have an unfair advantage in competing with females in most sports just the use of the terms male and female is, of course, anti-Humpty Dumpty, is to be transphobic. Defending requirements that voters show identification is racism. Arguing for grades based on merit is racist. The list goes on and on. Wokeism is a quasi-religious movement that brings passion and intolerance together to reshape the world. In its determination to impose its new words, and indeed a new world, upon those around it, the woke movement is, in the tradition of the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Cultural Revolution. In each case... The ideas and language of the past had to be rejected and replaced by a new model with new words and no tolerance for dissent. As I would say, as a noted side, two plus two no longer equals four. Mm -hmm. Or a recession no longer is a recession. <laughs> 
the leaders of the French Revolution decided they had to get rid of the Gregorian calendar because it had too many Christian associations. They invented a new calendar with new months, weeks, and days. In the new utopian calendar, the harvest became the month from June to July, mid-June to mid-July. There were 30 days in each month, with three weeks of 10 days each. Since they could no longer use the names of the seven-day week, they invented new days to go with their new month names. The first day of the 10-day week was primitive. To match the actual 365-day cycle, they added five days at the end of the year for festivals and vacations. Now, why not? Must be Irish, right, John? Right. <laughs> the new revolutionary calendar was adopted in 1792 and lasted 17 years until Napoleon abolished it as of January 1, 1806, and reverted to the Gregorian calendar. Wolksters might take note of how rapidly the nuttiest parts of the French Revolution were repudiated once the initial wave of fanaticism faded away. Bam. When will we wake up once the fanaticism fades away, and what will we think of ourselves? We're going to think how foolish this period in time was when you could lose your job, lose your place in society over a word. Uh, you know, calling someone... Or worse, he, John, or, or worse, John, a thought. A thought, yeah. You know, calling somebody a he when they want to be known as she and they're, you know, 79 genders instead of two. And can, I, can, can I pose a question? Does mm -hmm. anybody here listening have a problem with calling someone a he who is really a she? I don't. Now, but, if you ask me to, I will, but don't expect me to know. I'm not going to walk up and down the street asking everyone, what's your pronouns? What's your pronouns? Yeah, lift your leg like a dog, right? <laughs> yeah. But the question is, it is, it, you know, it isn't, do you want me to call you a he and I won't do it because I will. The question is, am I supposed to believe that you are something? That's a different animal. And so what do people think about that? So in any event, that's what the French revolution was about. It was about accepting, you know, living the lie. Everyone got wrapped up into the movement. Everyone wanted something to be true. It had to be true. It must be true. And we shall force it to be true, or your head will be chopped off. But what if it isn't true? What if it is a lie? Well, then live it. This right. is woke. This is wokeism. Wokeism is, you know, the French Revolution run amok without guardrails or controls of the populist movement in the modern day society. Yeah, I agree with you. Let's continue.
However, at the present time, there is an alliance between the big government socialists and the woke fanatics. And I want everyone to listen to this. There's an alliance now. This is no longer socialists and their economics. Socialists and their control. Wokesters and their paranoia. Wokesters and their <laughs> craziness. This is an alliance now. It is the controlling factor in our society. In return, the bureaucracy support new words and principles and the imposition of woke values in language on Americans who refuse voluntarily accept them. The problem with this alliance of the big government socialism and the wokesters is that they seek to impose policies on the people, which the people do not want and often resist. In a country in which elections still count, it is virtually impossible for big government socialists to be candid about what they are doing. Joe Biden cannot openly admit that thousands of people are crossing our border illegally every day without law enforcement or medical scrutiny. Furthermore, he cannot admit that his administration is secretly shipping these non-citizens all over the country and not telling anyone. That kind of honest admission would destroy his presidency if indeed it has already not been destroyed. Similarly, Biden can't acknowledge that the prices of beef and pork are going up or that his policies raise the cost of petroleum products that go into fertilization, fertilizer, making farming and raising livestock extra expensive. It can't verbally accept that it has increased inflation, which raises prices on everything. It can't admit that it has adopted policies that encourage people to stay home rather than work, which also raises the cost of labor to farms, meat packers, distributors, and others. The natural economic consequence of these policies is, of course, that essential food prices rise. Publicly acknowledging this would focus the public anger directly on Democrats, which Biden will never do. Instead of accepting the truth that ideologically driven government policies are needlessly raising the cost of food, gasoline, eating oil, and medical care, and crippling logistics supply chains in the process, it is essential for big government socialists to find scapegoats upon which to heap blame. The Biden administration attempt to blame the four major meat processors and distributors for the rise in the cost of meat would be laughable if it were not so dangerous. Biden's anti-market pro-government control approach will lead his administration to adopt policies of so-called increased compensation by doling out $1 billion in taxpayer money to encourage smaller, less efficient, and less effective meat production systems. Just as the Solyndria solar panel manufacturer collapsed cost taxpayers $500 million in loan guarantees, this approach will temporarily prop up several small companies, many of whom will go, the, will go broke. Big government socialists refuse to believe 
They are bad investors, and the market is smarter than bureaucrats. They consistently take your tax money to subsidize their pet projects, and the net result is often a disaster. Shall I continue? <laughs> Let's carry on. Big government socialism never works. The amazing thing about the American intellectual community's passionate commitment to big government socialism is that it never works. No matter how bad socialism's track record is, intellectuals love the concept because it shifts power from successful entrepreneurs, wealthy business leaders, and the ordinary Americans to the elite intelligentsia. In a big government socialist system, it is the intellectuals who have the real power. They get to dictate to everyone else how to behave and what to do. In some ways, big government socialism is like the rise of the pigs in George Orwell's classic anti-Marxist novel, Animal Farm. In the beginning, the Animal Farm was a revolution for fairness for all animals. Equity was the greatest value of the early animal revolution in Orwell's amazing fable. Then, gradually, the pigs, because they were smarter, took power and shifted the system until it was a new dictatorship with pigs rather than humans in charge. All the other animals were subservient. As the essential quote goes, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Richard, By the end... Like the world we're living in today. Go ahead. No. Like, talk about that. It just, it just sounds like today's, you know... All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. You know, like this this rich elite class that's in with the bureaucrats are have more equality than the rest of us. Or these protected classes have more equality than uh, everyone else. Even though, let, let's just say, you know, the... I don't know, the trans dog community, people think that their dogs uh, represent less than 1% of the population. If they can make enough noise, then they get more equality than the rest of us. So is it noise or is it ideas? It's just noise. It's not ideas to me. And where does that lead us? If, if all that is driving us is noise, where do we go? And that's why we're falling further behind other nations. Is where is where it's going. We're, well, you we're, you believe we're falling further behind? Why oh, is that? Absolutely. We focus less on education and thought, woke ideologies for at least twenty years, and we've reached the pinnacle of it now. But it's been going on for a while. You know, and China it, and Russia are all about wokeism, right? Oh hell no! Mm -hmm. There's no wokeism in China. You you do what you're told. You go to school. You're not allowed to be trans. You're not allowed to complain. You get your education, and, and they're beating us in it. Now, we, where we might want 
as Western liberal democracies, a little bit of equality and a little bit of flexibility. And Russia and China aren't giving us that. They certainly haven't gone over the deep end with wokeism. And no. that's the struggle. Globalism in this world today, ladies and gentlemen, globalism would have occurred. Globalism would have happened. We would have one world governments with one currency and one national capital had it not been for wokeism. Why is Vladimir Putin fighting a war in Ukraine right now? I don't think you can give it exactly one specific answer, but I think you can give it an umbrella. And that is, this is a guy, say what you want about him, who doesn't want this bullshit in his country. All right. And 75% of the people in this country don't want it there either. They don't want this kind of shit infecting their families and their kids and their culture. Now, that doesn't make that, you know, to me, that doesn't paint resistance to wokeism here as some totalitarianism, you know, fascistic cult. Because I think Putin is in many cases, out to lunch. But what it should say to a lot of people who are just thinking realistically here, one, how are we engaging with people around the world, and do we really want to cause a war with everybody, keeping in mind what I read to you about 40 minutes ago, which was Kennedy's version of peace in his address to American University in June of 1963 to the graduates. And what our role is as a country and as intellectuals, real politique. Why do we have to continually impose our view, our way of society on others by tanks, by arms? Getting kind of yeah. controversial here, John. Yeah, that's that's what we're here for. Make people think. Gingrich continues. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And that's what sent Big John off. <laughs> By the end, the pigs were occasionally picking out lesser animals to be sold to the butcher to finance their lifestyles. Everything had come full circle. Historically, intellectuals are the pigs of Animal Farm. They know they are really smart. They read books and they get degrees from famous institutions that promise them status and authority. They operate as a petty as petty dictators in their classes, where the students have a huge incentive to smile and flatter professors who have the power to pass or fail them. Imagine the disgust 
the world-class intellectuals face at family dinner with relatives who have less education, often fail to read books, but somehow are wealthier and more powerful than they are. The professional light has a deep class interest in developing a mechanism that transfers power from their supposed lessers to themselves. Given their IQs, self-ascribed, of course, and their learning, <laughs> self-touted, it is only natural that they should dominate those who have money and power, but no knowledge or culture. Now, I want to stop right now, because the whole thing of the book here is to defeat big government socialism. And we're going off on tangents, and we're making valid points, but let's bring it together. At this point in the whole damn thing, what we're talking about is a bunch of elite, well-positioned individuals trying to tell us what is right and what is wrong, and that if we disagree, we should shut up. And that despite the fact that we have had revolutions around this world and in, in this country to repudiate such ideologies, we need to accept that at this point in time, we have evolved to a particular point where we should just shut up. Now, John, should we just shut up? Certain people of us. Uh, I think, you know, there's a, a point where you learn more where when you listen and we're not listening to each other we're listening to one side and you know that side doesn't listen to the conservative or the uh, non-liberal side of things there's only one side to the argument right now or how about the in tune side how about a different side how about a more enlightened side. Do you that realize? Do you realize that some of the most powerful lyrics in rock is the Elvis Presley song in the ghetto, mm. where he talked about the cycle that continues over and over again of people who are born in this situation. It's not, about, it's not about buildings. It's not about location. It's just a situation. And while the song talks about people born in Chicago, we all know that Elvis grew up in rural poverty. So right. the, ghetto, the ghetto isn't inner city. The ghetto is overlooked areas in this cult, in this country. And so when we talk about defeating big government socialism, has anyone ever taken the temperature of the people in these overlooked ghetto areas to actually see how things are going? I don't, I mean. I think Trump did, you know. I think what he, Cory Booker, and Tim Scott did with Opportunity Zones, 
definitely took a look at what was going on uh, from the ground level. And I think what, you know, Lyndon Johnson and Roosevelt and what Biden are doing are looking down from the top and say, well, if we just throw enough money into a problem, it'll, it'll solve itself. If we put more programs in place, it, those, the problems will go away. And it ends up being the opposite. And, and so how do we defeat this? When we're faced with a conservative argument about A, B, C, and D, and this comes in. We have to discuss it. We have to talk. We have to debate and, and listen to each other. From the French entitlement assault on the aristocracy and the church to the Russian intelligentsia rallying around Vladimir Lenin and communism to Chinese librarian Mao Zedong leading a bloody cultural revolution, history is filled with arguments for government control over the lesser, uneducated parts of the population. The language of big government socialism always condemns an inadequate presence and promises a remarkably better, almost utopian future. Thus, the popular analysis and promises of big government socialism, with its alluring transfer of power to politicians and bureaucrats, has been attractive for people pursuing power throughout the third world. Paul Johnson in modern times, the world from the 20s to the 90s, emphasizes the unusual role of the London School of Economics in destroying progress in Africa. The number of African leaders who applied socialist models to their countries was astonishing. Yet socialism never worked. In country after country, with great potential in mining, agriculture, and in some cases in oil and gas, the potential for growth and prosperity was simply dissipated. A combination of bad socialist policies, discouraged investment and growth, and sheer corruption frightened away investors who relied on honesty to safeguard their investments. Corruption specifically is the enemy of economic growth. And think about Cuyahoga County in Cleveland, for an example. Why is Jimmy DeMora, you know, facing so many years in jail? Because he skimmed off the top and screwed over hardworking people. People refuse to invest in a country where the politicians may take their property through taxation or confiscation. The result is a steady outflow of money and talent seeking countries in which the rule of law guarantees opportunity and the right to keep the fruits of your efforts. Lee Kong Yu, the extraordinary former leader of Singapore, who led that island into becoming one of the richest and most technologically advanced countries in the world understood thoroughly the dangers of socialist thinking. He had been a graduate student in England after World War II and at the time of the labor government's efforts to create a government-dominated socialist system. 
We were together one weekend when I was speaker. This is Newt Gingrich. And I asked him what principle he applied to create such a dynamic, modern, and wealthy country in one generation. It was very simple, he replied. Every time I faced a major decision, I asked myself what former British Prime Minister Clement Attlee and the Socialists would have done. I then did exactly the opposite, and it worked 100% of the time. You can legitimately ask what would doing the opposite work. The answer lies in the nature of human beings and the inhumation requirements of big government socialism. The deepest difference between big government socialism and the American constitutional system built around the practicalities of human nature is this question of how the world really works versus the intellectuals would like for it to work. Ultimately, you either design a system that reinforces and supports how people actually behave, or you design a system that imposes on the people whether they want it or not. The American constitutional system was created by a group of wise, practical politicians who had spent their lifetime studying various government forms and principles going back to ancient Rome, Greece, and Jerusalem. They were trying to deduce a set of principles about how people could maximize freedom by governing themselves while remaining organized enough to defend society from outside and domestic efforts to take over and control the people. Virtually all the founding fathers were practicing politicians who had spent time winning office and working with other people who had won elections. They were virtually all successful farmers or businessmen, so they had a lot of practical knowledge about how the world worked and how people behaved. They designed the structure of government based on the combination of historic knowledge, practical knowledge, and real-world experience. In Abraham Lincoln's world, <clears throat> excuse me, in Abraham Lincoln's words at Gettysburg, the Founding Fathers wanted government of the people, by the people, and for the people. By contrast, big government socialism seeks government over the people, controlling the people, and defining the rights of the people. The contrast could hardly be greater. The first key difference is who controls. In a free society, you must largely control yourself. As many of the Founding Fathers wrote, self-government starts with governing yourself. They emphasized the importance of a moral and often religious basis of freedom. They believed that self-government required, first, literally, governing itself. But in big government socialist system, government controls you. Frederick Hayek, in his classic, The Road to Serfdom, argues that centralized planning inevitably leads to tyranny. Forcing people to do what the bureaucracy wants ultimately leads the bureaucracy to impose more controls. The recent experience with masks and vaccinations is a classic example of government reaching deeper and deeper into your life. After all, 
if government can determine what you will put into your body and what you will put on your face, you have surrendered a lot of liberty to a faceless, nameless bureaucracy. To be clear, I support vaccinations and wearing masks for the sake of public health. I don't support a federal government imposing vaccines and mask wearing upon me. Because governments inherently have the power to use force, the danger of a strong government micromanaging people and censoring people represents a real threat to the concept of freedom. There is a steady drift in big government socialism toward more controls and greater willingness to use force against your own people. This is how charismatic socialist leaders such as Benito Mussolini in Italy, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Fidel Castro in Cuba, Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, and Robert Magwe in Zimbabwe, gradually acquire power and then ally themselves with the forces of representation, military and police, against the general public. Again and again, the dissidents, who are usually the middle class, find themselves crushed by police and military who are prepared to use force. The argument of the gun defeats the argument of reason through sheer brutality. In order to sustain their power, the leaders of socialist regimes find themselves forced to shift resources to take care of those who defend them and crush dissent. One of the reasons embargoes don't work well against dictators is that they simply take more of the dwindling resources to pay generously for their security forces. The people who prop up the regime not only fail to feel the impact of the foreign embargoes, they are strengthened by their relative wealth and comfort compared to those who generate public... who. who uh, uh, compared to those in the general public who are suffering but politically impotent. Even in non-dictatorships, governments have a constant pattern of favoritism and cronyism. As I mentioned before, and will bring up again, there is a profound reason Lord John Dalibert Acton in 1887, warn, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more, when you super add the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority. There is no worse heresy than the often sanctifies the holder of it and the office sanctifies the holder of it the pattern of hunter biden laptop the biden contracts with ukraine russia and china and the ongoing fraud of hunter's artwork which will be priced vastly higher because he is the president's son are clear examples of corruption by the highest level the parallel exploitation of the biden name by the president's brothers and the clear references to influence peddling is outlined in painful detail in the book by Miranda Devine, Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech, 
and the dirty secrets the president tried to hide. The general corruption of the American system is evidenced in the desperate efforts of the left-wing propaganda media to avoid covering any corruption. This effort includes the banning from the social media the fourth largest and oldest newspaper, the New York Post, founded by Alexander Hamilton for the last few weeks before the 2020 election. The Post first broke the story about incriminating evidence on Hunter Biden's lost and found laptop. The propaganda media could not allow this information to come to light ahead of the election. Corruption is all too often narrowed down to specific overt acceptance of bribes. Yet the much more dangerous corruption is the systemic willingness to reallocate resources and power for political and personal reasons rather than implementation of legitimate public policy. The great American historian Gordon Wood dealt extensively with the alienation and coercive impact of corruption in the British government on the American colonists in the creation of the American Republic. When the American Whigs described the English nation and government as eaten away by corruption, they were in fact using a technical term of political science rooted in the writings of classical antiquity made famous by Machiavelli developed by the classical Republicans of 17th century England and carried into the 18th century by nearly everyone who laid claim to knowing anything about politics. And for England, it was a perversive corruption, not only dissolving the original political principles by which the Constitution was balanced, but more alarming, sapping the very spirit of the people by which the Constitution was ultimately sustained. Wood describes the growing sentiment in colonial America that its mother country was corrupt. Despite the reforms of the glorious revolution of 1688, the crown had still found a way to corrupt the supposedly balanced English government. England, the Americans said over and over again, once the land of liberty, the school of patriots, the nurse of heroes, has become the land of slavery, the school of of parasite, parasites and the nurse of tyrants. By the 1770s, the metaphors describing England's, England's course were all disparaging. The nation was fast streaming toward a cataract, hanging on the edge of a precipice, the brightest lamp of liberty, and all the world was dimming. Intellectual decay was the most common image, a poison, and entered the nation and was turning the people and the government into one of mass corruption on the eve of the revolution of the belief that England was sunk in corruption and teetering on the brink of destruction, had become entrenched in the minds of disaffected Englishmen on both sides of the Atlantic. 
This sense of ubiquitous corruption in lawbreaking is a widespread but generally unspoken and unexplored part of what is happening in America today. Remember, if California lost $20 billion in unemployment compensation funds, that means there were a lot of people willing to steal from the state of California. When you see a video of a gang of 80 people robbing a Nordstrom department store near Los Angeles, you are watching 80 Americans willing to break the law methodically and flagrantly. The illegal drug economy may be one of the largest centers of lawbreaking in the United States. When the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates more than 100,000 Americans died from drug overdose in a 12-month period, that means a lot of people were making money by breaking the law and selling drugs. The homeless settlements need to be studied for the level of illegal activity that sustains their economies. In some cases, they may turn out to be open-air drug markets. Law-abiding Americans are in many ways under siege by a wide range of dishonest people engaging in a wide range of illegal and corrupt activities. The steady spread of corruption and dishonesty is just one component of a phenomenon. The late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a liberal Democrat and great sociologist, wrote in an essay in 1993 called Defining Deviancy Down. Moynihan was identifying a series of patterns three decades ago that have grown in power and persuasiveness since he first wrote. Drawing on the work of the great 19th century French sociologist Emily Durkham, Moynihan reasoned that we had entered into we had entered a phase in which society was accepting more deviancy because it was so it was so common people had to normalize it. Moynihan's essay was summarized in a brilliant column by Charles Krauthammer in 1993, analyzing Moynihan's theory. In addition to expanding Moynihan's point about defining deviancy down, Krauthammer illustrated its impact brilliantly. Krauthammer pointed out the single parenthood tripled from 1960 to 1993, and that fatherless households are closely related to increases in crime, addiction, in a slew of societal issues. Yet, as he said, the intellect intelligentsia of modern culture has ignored this problem and redefined single parenthood as a benign alternative life choice. Krauthammer then pointed out that crime, and specifically homicide, has become so commonplace that, quote, we have come to view homicide as in erasable a part of the social landscape as car accidents. Finally, he pointed out that rates of mental illness have not greatly changed. But as a, as a society, we have stopped dealing with it in a meaningful way. He pointed out that there were 93,000 patients in New York State's asylum system in 1955 and only 11,000 in 1992 is as he put it where have the remaining 82,000 
and their descendants gone onto the streets mostly in one generation a flood of pathetically ill people has washed onto the streets of America's cities we now step over these wretched and abandoned folk sleeping in doorways and freezing on gates they too have become accepted as part of natural landscape we have managed to do that by redefining them as people who simply lack affordable housing. They are not crazy or sick, just very poor. As if anyone crazy and sick and totally abandoned would not end up very poor. Mr. Moynihan's powerful point is that with the moral degradation of the 1960s, we have had an exploitation of deviancy in family life, criminal behavior, and public displays of psychosis. And we have dealt with it in the only way possible, by redefining deviancy down so as to explain away and make normal what a more civilized, ordered, and healthy society long ago would have labeled and long ago did label deviant. Moynihan and Krauthammer's thinking is important because every trend they identified as decaying has gotten steadily worse since they wrote the original papers in 1993. This may be one of the most important explanations of American decay that anyone has written. The collapse of the family and the rise of children raised without male influence has dramatically accelerated. The crime rate has ex exploded once again. The homeless shelters of the early 1990s have become ramshackle tent cities in places such as Los Angeles, Seattle, and San Francisco. There was a second, even more threatening aspect of defining deviancy down as Moynihan described it. The more we tolerate the more traditionally normal behavior became unacceptable. Krauthammer added to the Moynihan analysis with a new insight that has become chillingly real. Yeah, I want to stop there for a second. Yeah, I underlined that sentence. The more we tolerate destructive behavior, the more traditionally normal behavior became unacceptable. Isn't it strange how, let's just say uh, deviant sexual practices, uh, you know, strip clubs, prostitution, pornography has become the norm and is acceptable. But if you go to church and you speak out against these things, you're considered the weirdo. That's you're just mocked. happened in our you're lifetime. Yeah. You're mocked and you're uh, satirized. You know, that's, you know, if you're a part of what is perceived to be L7 or square behavior, you're mocked and satirized by the popular culture. And at one particular point in time, it was actually for the popular culture to mock and sat, uh, satirize, uh, poke fun of 
the normal behavior of most people in the country. Yeah, that's what what used to be normal is now become odd, and what was once uh, odd has become normal. Go ahead and continue. thinking about that because Mm -hmm. it almost seems like we have been saying in this chapter and in this book so far defeating big government socialism that the winning the argument to win elections is the blueprint but the consequence of not winning the argument Is meaning you got to live a lie. Right. And I guess I want people to think about that. If we, if, if we don't reject socialism and reject all these things that we've been reading for the past 30 pages in this book club about socialistic thinking, the dangers of it, What big government socialism does to American constitutional system, how we behave, the corruption in government, if all of that kind of goes away and we can't challenge that, then really where are we at? And not so much that, let's just say that we believe that there is a constitution and that there is a rule of government and that there is a system that is supposed to enable Western liberal democratic thinking and it doesn't. And you're pissed and you see the inequality. Where is the avenue for these two competing philosophies, these two competing arguments under this idea that we are free inherently by our creator to work itself out. I think what's happened is people aren't being listened to. People are being ignored. And the differences have mutated out each side of the political spectrum and corrupted itself moving back in. That's what I think. I would agree with you on that. The more we tolerated destructive behavior, the more traditionally normal behavior became unacceptable. Let's just apply that to what we all just said. Because we're all pontificating at this point, but that seems to be a pretty authoritative state that maybe we should consider in our beliefs. Crowtham added to Moynihan analysis with a new insight that has become chillingly real, which was what we just said. In the process of defining deviancy down, we have simultaneously begun defining normalcy as deviancy. Man, 
Stop right there. In the process of defining deviancy down, we have simultaneously begun defining normalcy as deviancy to balance the social equation. That might be the single greatest argument of why big government socialism not only is not working, but should never be trusted to work. Because what it is and what it does level sets any idea of morality and what is accepted behavior and resets it all on a level playing field. And how do you and, and how do you then interact? How do you make things work when everything has been shit canned? <laughs> In the process of defining deviancy down, we have simultaneously begun defining normalcy as deviancy. I mean, where is your moral compass at that point? Do we not want a moral compass as a society, as a political whatever? Do we do we not need any moral compass? In the process of defining deviancy down, we have simultaneously begun defining normalcy as deviancy to balance the social equation. Consider what that means now to be a heterosexual Christian married person who is pro-life, anti-drug use, and pro-police. In today's society, these characteristics likely mean you are homophobic, cisgender-centric, intolerant, probably racist, and living on unearned privilege gained from your inherent system, systemic effort to oppress others. Back in 1993, Charles Krauthammer concluded, the rationalization of deviancy reaches its logical conclusion. The deviant is declared normal. And the normal is unmasked as deviant. That, of course, makes us all that much more morally equal. The project is complete. What real difference is there then between us? Defining deviancy up also fills a psychological need. The need was identified by Senator Moynihan how to cope with the explosion of real deviancy. One way is denial. Defining real deviancy down creates the pretense that deviance has disappeared because it has been redefined as normal. Another strategy is distraction. Defining deviancy up creates brand new deviances that we can now go off and fight. 
that that distracts us from the real deviancy and gives us the feeling that despite the murder and mayhem and madness around us, we are really preserving and policing our norms. I have spent this much time on Moynihan and Krautheimer because they so clearly captured the trajectory of decay and decline that has accelerated over the last 30 years. I particularly included Krautheimer because his contribution to Moynihan's insight is much less well-known and profoundly captures the shift in who is discriminated against from historically deviant to the historically normal. So now, the normal is deviant, and deviant is normal. None of these changes were totally unobserved. In 1982, James Q. Wilson and George Kelling wrote an article entitled Broken Windows, which outlined how decaying conditions in neighborhoods make it psychologically easier to commit crimes, while well-kept neighborhoods of the same income and ethnicity make it psychologically harder to commit crimes. They had a huge impact on reducing crime for two decades. New York City Police Commissioner Bill Bratton called this theory the most important improvement in policing in half a century. Then the left repudiated them as racist, largely because former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg corrupted their sound theory into stop and frisk, which gave police license to radically profile and harass people. Nevertheless, broken windows was driven out of media acceptability, leading us back to today's skyrocketing crime. In 1983, the Reagan administration released a report, A Nation at Risk, which warned that the collapse in education was a threat to individuals and to the survival of the country. After a lot of publicity, nothing was done, and the decay continued. While some progress was made on school choice, the overwhelming weight of the teachers' unions remains. Their willingness to dumb down schools, focus on race rather than learning, and avoid teaching whether, when, whenever possible has continued the decay of American education with enormous national security and personal life opportunity costs. In 1984, Charles Murray wrote Losing Ground. This was the seminal work explaining that the great society's anti-work and anti-family reforms were shifting power from civil society, including religious and charitable institutions, to government bureaucracies. Murray pointed out these reforms had hurt the people they were supposed to help. According to Murray, we were losing ground on every aspect of life for the poor. His book was a key intellectual breakthrough, leading to the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. Millions left poverty, got jobs, and created better futures for themselves and their families. The American left, which has become the big government socialist system, has worked tirelessly to destroy the work requirements that were at the heart of the 1996 reform. The Biden administration has succeeded in recreating precisely the kind of incentive-destroying, life-crippling, passivity-inducing system about which Murray had warned. In 1992, 
Marvin Olasky wrote The Tragedy of American Compassion, which expanded on Murray's analysis and contrasted the work oriented through love of the traditional reformers with the exact opposite attitude and policies implemented by the Great Society under President Lyndon Johnson. The warnings of decay and decline were there for all to see, but the big government socialists and their woke allies were determined to ignore and reject them. The simple fact is that a decaying, declining, American-dominated by bureaucrats imposing destructive policies while being propped up by the taxpayers is far better for the left than a vibrant, dynamic, entrepreneurial, work, and achievement-oriented society in which government is small and opportunity is large. To understand the contrast, we will turn now to the principles that have worked historically into which we must return. That's some very powerful stuff there, that last sentence or two about... Uh, opportunity being large and government being small it, it just seems like so many people lost that over the years especially when the pandemic came along and we became dependent on government unemployment and stimulus checks but government overreach has really hurt the working people and made them just frankly lazy. Well, what I would ask, what, what question I would ask is who's doing better? Not who's doing better under Biden, not doing, not who's doing better under Trump. But really who is doing better from let's say 2005 or 2009 onward. Who's doing better? And I think what you will see is frustration, embarrassment, and fear from a category of average ordinary Americans who thought it would be a lot better and more dignified than what they're going through in terms of a job and opportunity and placement in society. They didn't want college. They didn't need college. They shouldn't have to have college. They're workers. They're regular people. And they have been crapped on by the political establishment of both parties and taken advantage of by the establishment of one party in particular and now they are fed up and I think when you break it down to not just those people but their kids is when you get a 
visceral reaction to the system that has screwed people who built this country. It isn't us, but it's now our kids. Our kids are screwed. Now me and you have a problem. And I think there are so many people in Washington, D.C. who don't get this, who don't want to get it, or don't know how to accept it. Of how to put this segment of the population at the table so they can receive America's bounty. So they can have a shot at the American dream. Because what they're accustomed to are political and economic shifts one way or the other, but with them in charge and the ease of their ascension to positions of, of power. And what's happening right now in this country is people are tired of that. That's why Mitch McConnell has the lowest approval rating among any politician in the country, and that's why Donald Trump has the highest approval rating amongst any politician in the country. And one side continues to work against the other at the expense of the realization of the American dream to so many people. Because that can't happen if a group of people or a particular person takes over. Can't happen. And so that leaves a lot of people wondering, well, what are we supposed to do? Because there's no one else out there that can do what we want them to do to get the government back within the consent of the governed and providing opportunity and economic advancement to the American people because everyone else over the last 30 years has sold us out. And well, that's, that's when they look at outsiders. In defeating big government socialism. Because only the outsiders are going to be able to do that. This, this isn't going to come from an inside deal. The people in Washington aren't going to wake up with a 60-seat majority in Congress next January and say, well, I guess we ought to defeat big government socialism. I guess we ought to embrace MAGA. Right. All right, John, so we read the introduction. We read Chapter 1. We did a lot of stuff. I hope people think. I hope people ask us. A lot of questions. They challenge our opinions. That's cool. But more importantly, I hope they take ownership into this republic and want to keep it. Yeah, of themselves too. You know, what do I believe? What? What do I really want from my government? You know, what's government's role in my life? Things like that are what people really need to be asking right now. 
And are we asking ourselves the right question? Are we questioning our own beliefs and saying, why am I taking my kid to drag time story hour? Why am I letting my kid put a dollar in a, a drag queen's dress? Would I take them to a strip club? I think, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene hit the nail on the head when she tweeted, there's no difference in letting your kid put a dollar in a drag queen's bra than letting a, your kid put a dollar in a stripper's bra. Right? Well, where's the moral authority? If it doesn't come from government institutions or... I mean, where does it come from? I mean, is is the family that corrupt at this point? Is the family the family structure that broken? I think you know, it might be. I, unfortunately, I think it might be. You know, we've got an epidemic of fatherless homes, uh, and you know, you and I came from that background, but we had strong moms and strong grandparents to help them out. It kept us on the right path. Not everyone has that. And how yeah, is we, government? We had, we had backup. Yeah, absolutely. We had backup. You know, and the great society helped to weaken that, you know. Uh, and we don't even think of it consciously now of having multiple sexual partners and guys that don't take care of their kids or, you know, moms that have two or three children with two or three different guys, you know, uh, it, it's just weird, man. It's just strange. Well, what we are looking for is a country that works for all of us. And what we are getting is a big government socialist narrative that tells us through its empirical operation that somebody's going to work out better. Something's going to work out better than us, but it's okay. We got to give a little to get a little. And I think what the American experiment is about isn't giving up a little to get a little. It's preserving a lot to protect the future. Right. So chapter two will be danger and opportunity. Socialism saving America's future by Newt Gingrich. And we'll see what we come up with in the... That's actually a pretty long chapter. Yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> chapter, though. Yeah, I haven't well, gotten to that one. I haven't gotten to that one yet. I'm uh I'm going on a, a trip here tomorrow and mm-hmm. uh, I might take this book with me. So what is that? Thirty, three, four, five, yeah, like twenty five pages. That's a pretty decent I mean, that's an you know, adequate chapter, but there's a lot here. Right. But we want people to keep on thinking. We want people to know what they want. This is a great book. John, I'm glad you're into it. And I'm glad the audience is into it. 
Definitely. Well, let's wrap it up. Any final thoughts? Tune in to chapter two. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> well, with that, guys, God bless you and pray for each other. And we'll see you the next time. Doc, thanks for calling in.